Why are people packing up from here, those that should go? Not everyone should go, but those that should. Why do they leave and go to these different places where there's little access? What's behind that? What's the fundamental root reason? That's what I want to discuss with you for a about two weeks in a simple series I'm calling The Matter of Why. Last year we discussed the matter of X, which is multiplication. But why are we committed and involved in in multiplying, making disciples of all nations, witnessing, missions? Use the word as you wish. But why are we involved in that? I think Psalm 96 brings us the answer. So take your Bibles and locate that with me, would you? Psalm chapter 96. Let me read the entire psalm with you here. We've read portions this morning. But let's read the entire 13 verses. Let's see exactly why we're involved in missions. Let's get to the root issue this morning. We'll do that this morning and next week. Here's verse 1. Follow along with me. David says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples for, put a square and a circle around that word, would you? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols but the lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him strength and beauty are in his sanctuary so ascribe to the lord O families of the peoples ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory due his name bring an offering and come into his courts worship the lord in the splendor of holiness tremble before him all the earth Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen, church? We're going to see from this psalm exactly the fundamental, the root reason we uh, are involved so intricately and deeply and um, in missions. To do so, let me show you kind of a, a snapshot of a part of my notes. Here's kind of how I see the chapter in a Cliff Notes illustration, Okay. Just going to show you so that that you can get your handle around the whole thing. There's really actually two responses in this song. This is a song, by the way. It's in the Jewish hymn book. And there's several ways to look at it. It does have in the ESV three verses. Some have it in four verses. I prefer seeing it in this kind of manner because the middle part is kind of the refrain, we may call it, in musical language. Maybe the chorus. You have these two verses that are the responses, okay? One is our witness in verses 1 to 3, and one is our worship in 7 through 13. And and Taylor said this well. These things all flow from God's greatness. The centerpiece of this psalm, the the bullseye part of this song is an, uh, an extolling of God's greatness. 
And so understand, we, in a, in a nutshell, we witness and we worship because of God and his greatness. Now, I'll explain more as we go to the psalm. But be aware, our primary reason is first and foremost vertical. It doesn't mean that there aren't horizontal secondary reasons. Man's need is a big one, sure. But the real reason that we witness and we worship is because God is great and worthy of it. We're going to take some time to look at the first part of that, the witness this week, and then next week about the worship section. But before we do either, any of that, let's see why God is so great. Let's kind of attack the centerpiece of this psalm. I think there are four reasons. I'll mention these somewhat briefly. Just look at your Bibles with me. I think, first of all, he's great because of his salvation. This is actually in verse 2. You see it there in your Bibles. We're to bless the name of the Lord and tell of his, say it with me, church, salvation from day to day. I think it's a reference to a number of things. It's a reference to God's deliverance of his people Israel as an overarching theme. But remember, this happened first in Exodus, right? When he delivered them from their bondage of 400 years and then parted the sea for them, brought them out from the pursuing Egyptian army. But don't, don't forget this, that this psalm here was actually written on the heels of being brought back from Babylon. Most historians will tell you this psalm is the, is the one they sang when they dedicated the, the second temple. They had been brought back from Babylon. The exiles had been released. They were back and the land was in shambles. The walls had been torn down. The temple was in, almost in ruin. They were celebrating God's deliverance of them from Babylon. So, so really, God was delivering them at, at key moments. God is a delivering God. God is a rescuing God. We're to tell of his salvation, his deliverance, his rescue. So he's great because of that. He's the only one who can do that. He's also great because of his position. Notice what it says in verse 4. He's great. He's greatly to be praised, which means he's to be praised in a great fashion. And he's to be feared, say these next three words with me, above all gods. So if you were to line the gods up, who's, who's top god? Yahweh. Now, that's not the best way to say it. That's kind of what it looks like. But he's not really saying there's a bunch of gods and our God just happened to win. There's really only one God. Now, there are other powers, we'll call it, demonic beings. But notice what he says. He says about these other gods, little g, they're really just worthless idols. I love the way this is a play on words in the Hebrew language here. He kind of uses the, the, the word Elohim for the first time in verse 4 about the little g gods. Like, oh, there are other gods, little g. But you know what they are? They're just worthless idols. The word here is the word nothings. So he says, oh, in the, in the perhaps human perspective, you may kind of line the gods up and think, well, our God's top, but the truth is Yahweh is over all of them. They're just nothing. They're not entities to him. Why is that? It's the third reason. It's because he made the heavens. So he's great because of his salvation. He's great because of his position, but he's great because of his creation as well. Now, see, now here the logic follows. If you made what other people are using to make their gods, guess who's the greater, bigger God? The one who was not made. <laughs> the one who made everything. So creation here is seen as the preeminent act of God's superiority. So for those of us who think that we can maybe shake our fist in God's face, 
or that we can be God. Uh, let's back that truck up, right? Who made us? God did. So by creation, by that fact alone, he rules, he reigns. And I think this is why you can see why there's such an attack and has been for, for centuries on creation. Because if we can get rid of God at the start, then we can live our life all we want and the way we want forever. But you see, God, by, by mere creation, by the act of creation, by the fact that he made and owns everything, he is God. That's why I think what happened in, um, at Union Seminary in New York about a month ago is so ironic. You can read about this if you'll just, you can Google it and find it, but the theology professors at Union Seminary in New York, the liberal seminary, they, they had the students bring in potted plants to the chapel, and they set the potted plants down. And then they said, okay, we're going to pray to the plants now, and we're going to worship the plants, and we're going to ask the plants to forgive us for treating them so badly. And so the theological professors and the leaders there led the students in confessing sins committed against the plants and asked the plants to forgive them. Here's what I think is so ironic about that. We could name a number of things that's kind of ludicrous about that act. But here's one that I think is ironic. They're bringing the plants in. Like, they're actually the ones who potted the plants, gave them the dirt, put them in the room, and yet they're now saying, oh, by the way, you are over us. Well, if the plants are so mighty, why do you need to haul them in? Why do you have to, does that make sense? It just seems odd. It's much like in the Old Testament. They would build idols out of stuff they owned and made, and then they would give that idol authority over them, but it would just stand there and never did anything. You see, I think creation is one of those things you have to ask yourself, who is really in charge? And the fact that you make the material or the fact that you make the idol and then give it, ascribe to it authority and glory is really spiritually illogical because the fact that you made it means you're over it. But you didn't make God. I didn't make God. He made us. So guess who's God? Not you and not me. God Almighty, Yahweh, he's the great God by creation. I think that's the logical flow here. He saves his people. He's over his people. And why can he do both of those? Because he made his people. And so we're to fear him above all gods. We're to see the other gods, though they may appear to be gods, they're really just nothings. This God is the one who is clothed in splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. Do you see that in verse 6? This describes his character. In fact, I think what we have here in a poetic language is the idea of personification. He's ascribing to God um, traits and using words to show what really exists in God's presence and what is part of God's being. In fact, they're, they're viewed here almost like attendants in the court, aren't they? You see verse 6? Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And, and so what you get is this sense that, man, when God is present, it's strength and splendor and beauty. It's indescribable. His character are these things and more. These are the ones he lists here in this song. And so someone who makes all things, who's over all things, who saves his people, this is his character. He's He's uh, 
splendor and majesty are before him. He's strong. He's beautiful. These are the reasons that we praise God. Just four of them in this song. Because of his salvation, his position, his creation, and his character. This is a great God, church, isn't it? And you see how these reasons really are quite vertical? By the way, I think these reasons move in proximity as well. Notice the very first one. We praise him. We know he's great because of his what? Salvation. And that's the nearest one we can grab onto. In fact, I think in this, in this song, it's the nearest one they could grab onto. They had just been delivered from Babylon. They thought about perhaps the Exodus. And so often when we think about why God is great, we do start with what's nearest us. We think about what God's done for us. When he saved us, when he's delivered us, that's okay. But it can't just stay there like, hey, look what God did for me. I'm good with that. Don't worry about anybody else. But it kind of moves almost like in a rippling fashion. Here's what God's done in, in the most accessible fashion right near me. But guess what? He's done that because he is above all gods. He's made everything. And the truth is he is uh, splendid and majestic and powerful. He does what he does because of who he is. And as you begin to think about God, the God of this psalm and the God of the Bible, these are the things and the ways he's described. He's not just a, a local ATM or a quick genie in a bottle. He's not just your emergency call when things get difficult. He is the great God of the universe who has saved his people, who owns his people, and he's clothed. He exists in majesty and power and strength and beauty. This is why God is great. So what does this do to us then? A God this great, this should be a, a compelling um, weight upon us. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, when you think about these things, it becomes heavy on you. That's the, the, the sense of the word glory, by the way. When you speak of the glory of God, you think about these things like, wow, God becomes in this moment very heavy. That's the word doxa in Greek. The glory of God, the heaviness, the weightiness of God. Here's why. He's, he's great. And so it should cause us to do at least two things. And this is really what the psalm breaks out next. The centerpiece of the psalm is four through six. But it says two things happen. We witness and we worship. Let's analyze again this thing called witnessing just for a few more moments, can we? Verses one through three. Here's what happens when we see God's greatness. One of the things that happens. It says that we, I'm going to read the three verses to you. And it will tell us about the witness that we're going to look at. It says, we're, we're going to sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Three times he uses the word sing, doesn't he? What do you think God wants you to do? He wants you to sing. Now, you can say, well, that's just because this is a song. It's in the hymn book of the Jews, so he's using the word sing. Admittedly so, but we can't say he doesn't want us to sing. This is definitely proof positive. He desires his people to sing to tell of his salvation from day to day and to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. I see five things in here about our witness that I think are pretty important. First of all, our witness is noticeable. Not only do you see the word sing three times, but you see the word tell and you see the word declare. Guess what? There's no such thing as a closet worshiper. Not if you really know God's greatness. 
Because, watch this, it, it will overwhelm and overcome you. And you will end up singing. You see, we all sing about something, don't we? Just go to a stadium. It may not be with notes, but they're singing. For the Hawkeyes, the Cyclones, the Bulldogs, the Panthers, the Vikings. Did I cover the Iowa territory okay? <laughs> Watch the TV on Sunday afternoons. People plan their schedules around who's playing. And you could go beyond the realm of sports. Possessions, relationships. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with passion for things in their right place. God's made us to be passionate people who enjoy all the good things he's given us. But only one thing should be worshipped. And that's God because he's great. He's great for so many reasons, four we just looked at. And so when you realize how vast his greatness is and how superior it is to other little g-gods in our life, our worship of God will be noticeable, we'll sing, we'll tell, we'll declare. We will not be ashamed. We'll say more about this next week when we talk more about the worship part of our response. But just notice here he says, our witness is very noticeable. It's audible, it's verbal, it's visible, whatever word you want to use. There's no way you read verses 1 through 3 and think, you know what, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder if they're compelled. I wonder if they're joyful. You can just see, man, they are thankful and they're praising God. Notice something else about this witness. It's non-negotiable. Every one of these words, sing, declare, and tell, they're, they're imperatives. But watch this, church. You don't sense in this text. You don't, the ambiance isn't this. Okay, my, my dad said I've got to go to bed. It's like that, that parent command, like, well, i got to do it. And so you do it, but everyone knows, like, man, this is the, the chore of your life, isn't it? <laughs> you don't sense that in here. You sense this, this, I would use the word compulsion, like, I've got to sing. I've got to tell. I've got to declare. Because God is so great, I've got no other choice. It's not like, oh, yeah, he's God, and i got to be, be fearful and careful. So he said, sing, so okay. I'll sing. You don't sense that, do you? So it helps you kind of, kind of get your hands around. What does an imperative look like? It looks like it's the commands of God done without the burden. In fact, didn't John say this in the New Testament? He said his, his, his commands are not burdensome. So I think this is a moment of inspection for us. If you find that singing... That sharing, that declaring, it's like, oh, brother, what's going on in here? How's the heart? So it's noticeable, it's non-negotiable, it's also global. Church, let's make no mistake about who is summoned to this worship gathering of our great God. It is all the earth. It is all the families of the peoples. It is all the nations. It is all the peoples. And those words are mentioned more than once in these 13 verses. So let us be crystal clear on who is to hear of our witness. 
It is all the earth. Hopefully that begins locally and it's loudest to those who are closest. Amen? We don't want to overlook those who are without Christ because we're focused on the far away all the time. But neither do we want to ignore the far away because all we can see is the first three or four miles. You see, the real joy and the beauty of the Great Commission is that it is for all peoples, both near and far. There is no language group that's not invited to worship God. There's not a single people group. There's not a single uh, families of people, as he mentions in the text. There's no one excluded. In other words, we say this, that the gospel is without distinction. Someone from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, they're all invited. And the mouthpiece of that invitation is the, 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 com, the, the compelled witness of the church because they see how great God is. global it's universal it's also renewable i love that word in verse one don't you sing to the lord a what now i've told you already that this song was probably written as they were returning from babylon and engaged in rebuilding the temple a second time so what do you think the word new refers to it refers to probably a new collection of songs for that event wouldn't you say so and David's here saying, this is probably one of them, by the way. But David's saying, the old songs aren't bad. The ones written uh, after the Exodus, yes. But here God's doing something else in our midst, another deliverance. Let's praise him with new songs. So it's this renewable, kind of continuous praise that's flowing from the lips of God's people. It's, it's maybe best described by the word fresh. You ever talk to someone and all they can ever give you about God's work in their life is what happened 25 years ago? Don't you wish sometimes they'd say, man, just yesterday, you know what God did for me? And, and, and it's fresh. Maybe the word current. It's not minimizing the past. But sometimes we have to be careful to distinguish between what's nostalgic and what's strategic. And past praise can be nostalgic and make you feel good. But sometimes it's current praise that's actually most strategic. Because it speaks into this generation that is right now. It shows what God is doing in the present. And can I be frank with you? This is hard as you get older. Because you love to relish in the nostalgia. I'm poking at myself here. I love to think about what God did when and back then. But man, I want to see God do something today, don't you? And I want to write a new song for that. And praise Him with fresh praise. Give him glory in the current moment. That's why I love the song that, two songs actually Josh wrote. I think Psalm 45 and Psalm 51. I don't know if he's in this service or not, but man, our church sang those for years. I, I, I hope we keep singing it. Two current, fresh songs birthed out of First Family. In fact, I watched the video of their mission team in Sweden doing that song. Well, some of you saw it, I think, as well. Man, don't you love the fact that there's new songs birthed from God's work among us? I know Taylor's laying groundwork with this team now, but what does it look like to form a, a, a writing collective? What does it look like for our church to, to continue to, to sing a new song, watching what God's doing and writing about that with notes so that we can do what? Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. So it's renewable. 
many of you don't know this, but one of my favorite things to do, and I don't do it a lot because I get embarrassed. Even around Julie, I do. Um, but I love to go down to the keyboard in our basement. And I play by ear, and it's not really good. It's, it's not good at all. But I can pick out a few notes. And I love to sit down there and just play a song. I like to write music. It's really bad, by the way. But I'll, I'll string a few lyrics together, and just in the kind of uh, secrecy of our basement, man, just sing your heart to God, you know, and praise Him for the current fresh work He's doing. No, you cannot come to the basement. You cannot, you cannot be there, trust me. It's not that good, but it sure means a lot to me. It's a meditation moment in which you can just kind of write something fresh. And let's, let's sing a new song, right? And then lastly, notice the witness's direction. This may be something I've missed for decades in reading this psalm. I've never, I've never really seen it this way before, and I love the way God's Word is so alive and, and rich. Don't you? I'm, I'm struck by the fact that our witness is actually, this praise is actually to the Lord. And maybe it's more correct to say our worship is to the Lord, but I'm just analyzing verses 1 through 3 in which he says, Sing to the Lord, right? He says to bless His name, we're to tell of His salvation, declare His glory. Uh, and yet, there is a sense in which others are watching, but they never use the word to. Read the chapter. It never says sing to the nations. It never says declare um, you know, to the peoples. It simply says we're to ascribe to the Lord, we're to sing to Him. The sense is that our witness and worship really is vertical, and then those who are watching are like, wow. They draw something from watching that. So we are in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, Paul said in Philippians, right? But we let our light shine. So it's like we're living this way. He's the one we're praising. We're singing to him. He's got our attention just raptured. We're enthralled with God's greatness. Our eyes are set on Jesus. And yet we're in the middle of, of people who don't know him. Whatever country you're living in, whatever neighborhood you're residing, we're among the nations, right? People from all sorts of different languages, and we're in the middle of that. And yet, the primary focus here, watch this, the primary point isn't that we're to be looking this way. Hey, have you heard? Have you heard? Can I tell you? Can I declare to you? Can I show you? That's, that happens, but it happens because, watch, we are singing to the Lord a new song. We're praising Him. He has got us uh, fully. And as they watch that, they have to be wondering, what is with these people who can't help but sing and share and tell? It really mirrors what Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he said that when the church gathers, the Holy Spirit's power and presence should be so manifest that a lost person can walk in and say, truly, God is among you. Notice they, they didn't get like an explanation. They didn't get like a stop for a, for a comment. They just watched. They saw the church worshiping and it was the witness. So church, your witness is actually designed, I think in its primary root form, to be very vertical. You sing to God. You worship the Lord. You declare to him how great he is how small we are appropriately. 
And as people watch your response, the created one, to the creator, as they see that playing out in your life, they will say, truly, God is among you. And your witness will be strong. I think sometimes we've worried too much about the horizontal. And we've preached on this. We've talked about it. I don't think it is something we can't talk about, how to witness and what we're afraid of. But, but the truth is, I think most of our fears in witnessing will be overcome if we really explore the depths of how great God is. And if we just would let our, our passionate worship of him just be seen. Just let's be the distinctive church in the middle of the nations. Let's worship God as his people. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. And let's just do that in the middle of a community, of a nation, of a town who doesn't know the Lord. And let's see how God would use that to proclaim his greatness to them as well. So five things about our witness that I hope you see here. Five things that stem from the greatness of God. So this shows me something about this missionary song of the church, which Psalm 96 is kind of known as that, by the way. Some commentators have called it the church's missionary song. Here's what we see in a factual, truthful way. That the church's missionary song is one of witness. It is one of worship as well. We'll see more next week. But at least this week we're seeing the centerpiece, verses 4 through 6, about the greatness of God results in a church who sings, and that becomes a witness to God's greatness. So we say it like this. The church's missionary song is one of witness, and it's motivated by God's greatness. But that's only a factual truth. And it's, it's, it's necessary, it's appropriate, we embrace it, but it's only a truth. What do you do with this truth? Psalm 96, 1 through 6. What do we do with that? We rejoice in that, but here's what I say we do with it. Let's kind of extend this take-home truth, can we? Since the church's missionary song is one of witness, and it's motivated by God's greatness, watch this, say it with me. Deepen your commitment to missions by raising your view of God. So I've got no desire this morning to try to leverage you or crank on you with some kind of guilt language about missions in Indonesia and North Africa and maybe you'll go home, pack up your stuff and move too. That's not anywhere in my frame of thought. In fact, most of you should not pack up your stuff and move, okay? There are some that should, but man, we need a lot of folks holding the rope here. I just want to just do one thing this morning. I want to show you that all of our witnessing is empowered by every bit of God's greatness. And, and, and just lift your eyes, church, and see the biblical God who by way of position, salvation, creation, and character is great. Dive in the depths of Scripture so that you see him as he really is. And when his greatness overtakes you, you'll have no problem singing the church's missionary song. Our problem isn't a tongue issue. Our problem is a sight issue. I summon you to see the greatness of God. How are we going to do that, Todd? Very simply, I'm going to ask you to join me in praising God together. Here's how we're going to do it.
the band's going to join me, and we're going to reprise that same chorus we sang earlier. It's really a chorus that I think really comes well from Psalm 96, in which it says, all the earth will shout his name. Will you do that with me this morning for a little bit? They're getting ready. They're going to get set. They didn't know we were going to do this, by the way. This is a total surprise to them, so give them a second, okay? But in preaching through this psalm, even just before the service started, I sensed this is the best way to end. We're going to move to communion in a moment. But I just want to ask you to, to let's answer the summons of Psalm 96. Let's join in praising our great God. Because this is the real root reason that we go on mission. We're not selling a product. We're not selling ourselves. We're not trying to build some number. We're showing the world how great God is. That he's the true creator. He owns all of us. He made us. He has the right to our worship. So because he is beautiful, powerful, and majestic, and splendid, and strong, can we just for a moment set our eyes vertically and see God in all of his greatness, knowing that the higher view we have of God, the deeper our commitment will be to missions. He's inviting all the earth to praise him. And the mouthpiece for that invitation is his church. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.